grace alone. Okay? We're called the series Justified. Why? We call the series Justified because the doctrine of justification is the primary doctrine that Martin Luther was concerned with when it came to the Roman Catholic Church at the end of the 1400s and 1500s, okay? Now, primarily it was about Scripture ultimately because of the interpretation of Scripture, but the doctrine that Martin Luther was concerned about was the doctrine of justification. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to define justification for us. To be justified means to be found righteous, okay? So then the question about justification is this. How can filthy, wretched sinners who have offended a holy God, personally offended a holy God, how can that person be made right before that holy God? That is the question that we will be answering over the next five weeks. How are sinners made right before a God that they have personally offended? Today, it's by grace. Grace alone. I'm going to pray because we need it. I need it. I'm, every time I come up here, I feel like I'm going to throw up. I'm, that's how nervous I get. My, my wife came to me before the 9 o'clock service. She goes, are you okay? You don't look right. And I was like, she's like, you, you look like you're going to throw up. I was like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Every time I come up here, I feel like I'm going to throw up. <laughs> Scared to death to come up in this place. So, well, funny how the Lord does that, right? He, like, takes you someplace where you can't, don't like being all the time or just makes you feel uncomfortable. Well, here we are. I'm, <laughs> I'm confessing to you right now. Uh, if you're in the front row, <clears throat> could be, it could be bad. <laughs> I'm going to pray for us. God, we, we come before you this morning empty-handed. We have nothing that we can bring to you. We have nothing to offer you. We were all once wrecked sinners, helpless, hopeless. But you intervened. You reached into time and space and you drew us to yourself. You drew us to Christ, to faith in him. You saved us. So, as we look at this doctrine this morning of grace alone, salvation by grace alone, we want to magnify you and your work, God. And we want to recognize that we had nothing to do with that work and that you would receive all of the glory and honor for it this morning. It is in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Martin Luther said that justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. Let me say that one more time. Justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. Whether we get the doctrine of justification right 
is a matter of whether we're a Christian church or not, or whether we're just something else, a cult or something. How can the sinners be made right with the holy God? I want to give you a couple of examples, okay? A couple of gospel presentations, okay? And this is no offense. If somebody in here, if you came to saving faith because somebody presented the gospel to you in this way, praise God. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks, amen? People get saved at Bethel Church, all right? Okay? All right? But, but I'm giving these examples because we're talking about grace here, okay? Again, not poo-pooing anybody. Right? Hopefully at the end we'll, we'll come back to this and kind of bring it all full circle, okay? So, so bear with me here. First one, you're drowning in the ocean, right? And God comes along in a boat, and he throws you a life vest. All you have to do is reach up and grab that life vest, and you'll be saved. You just have to grab that life vest. Church, I submit to you this morning that is not grace. That is not grace. Let me give you another one. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And you're on the other side. And there's a doorknob, but the only doorknob is on your side. All you have to do is turn that knob, let Jesus into your heart. Church, I submit to you this morning, that is not grace. That is not grace. So what is grace? Let's define it. I've heard people define grace as unmerited favor. Everybody, who's heard that? Unmerited favor, right? I'm going to make an argument. That doesn't go far enough. I actually would say that the definition of grace is ill-merited favor. We actually, it's not that we don't uh, deserve it, but it's that we deserve something opposite of that. So it's not just that we receive something that we didn't deserve, namely in this case justification or salvation, but we receive that in place of what we actually do deserve, which is hell and condemnation and damnation for all eternity. It's ill-merited grace. We're actually getting something opposite of what we do deserve. What was Martin Luther's problem? What was his What was his issue with the Roman Catholic Church? Well, let's talk just for a minute about the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrine of grace. How does the Roman Catholic Church picture grace? Well, the, the Roman Catholic Church would say you definitely have to have faith in Jesus to be saved, for sure. That's, that's, not, that's non-negotiable. You must have faith in Jesus in order to be saved. But it's not just faith in Jesus. It's faith and works. Okay? So, we here at Four Points, being a Protestant church or a historically Orthodox church, we have two main sacraments. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? So most Protestant denominations have those two sacraments. The Catholic Church has, I believe, seven sacraments, okay? 
And those sacraments are required for each person who has faith in Jesus for a constant infusion of grace through those sacraments. Their view of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus is actually physically, his physical body and his blood are being consumed by, that, by the people when they take communion. What is that doing? That's infusing grace into their lives. Well, what is that grace that's infused? What does that do? Well, that, that, that grace empowers them to go do the works that they need to be saved. So it's not by faith alone. It's by faith plus works with the infusion of grace through their sacramental system, okay? I know this is riveting stuff for you guys, okay? <laughs> but, we got, but we got to give context to the, what the Reformation was about, right? We, we had, there's a reason why Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the castle at Wittenberg. It was because he knew he was a filthy, rotten sinner. He knew he was wretched. He knew that he couldn't save himself. And he was doing all the sacramental system. And guess what? He realized it was completely and utterly inaccurate and inadequate to take away his sin. And so he just grew more and more anxious under the weight of his own sin because his, he never felt like he, was, uh, he could have peace with God through this sacramental system. So he knew he knew that he was a sinner, but he didn't know, he didn't know how he could be saved. The, the Catholic Church was teaching him, you just got to do these things. And he was like, no, that's not giving me any peace with God. I, can, I don't think I'll be able to bring these sacraments before the holy God and have him declare me to be righteous. It's a works-based system. And he knew it could not save him. That's what the Reformation was primarily about. That's why it started. It started from the anxiety that was growing within him to know that he was a sinner and that his system that he's been taught as an Augustinian monk could not save him or remove his sins. Only Jesus. It's only Jesus. So they had a faulty view of what grace was and it wrecked Martin Luther. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. We are going to be camped here for a while. <clears throat> I want to say, too, it is Martin Luther was right, though. He was a filthy, rotten sinner. We all are. He got that part right. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, right? But you can't understand the depth and the riches of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you understand the bad news. There is bad news in the gospel. The gospel starts with bad news. It's, in fact, it starts with the worst news in the history of the world. We have all offended our creator. We have all personally offended the one true and living God. And we have to know that. We have to know our helpless estate before we can understand the depth of the riches of the grace of God. We must understand our estate. And Martin Luther did that. He understood that. But I, I, think, there, I think there are many, many churches in the West that are actually missing out on God's grace because they're preaching an inadequate gospel 
They're, they're, they're preaching a seeker-sensitive gospel. They're preaching an easy-believism gospel, a decisionism gospel, a raise your hand and say the prayer and walk the aisle gospel. Church, walking an aisle doesn't save you. That's a work that you do, and works are filthy rags. Raising your hand, that's... That, can God use those things? Of course he can. But I believe that we have churches that are truly missing out on God's rich grace because they're not preaching the other side of it. They're not preaching that we are under the wrath and the condemnation of God in our fallen, sinful nature. They're not preaching that because it doesn't get butts in seats. Right? It doesn't fill, it doesn't fill pastor's pockets. We're going to preach it here, daggummit. Somebody's going to have to drag me off this stage. Romans chapter 3. Everybody ready? Is it good? Everybody's good on the introduction. I know, I know that was a little rigorous just listening to me go on and bloviate on about that. Okay, let's get to the text of Scripture. Okay, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. By the way, really quickly, chapters, this is Paul's, Magnum opus systematic theology, the book of Romans, as we went through it two years ago. This is his, he has laid out a systematic theology in Rome, in the book of Romans. And, and just so we're clear, he spends the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans talking about how terrible we are and how bad of a state we all are in as sinners. That's a lot. Two and a half chapters. Okay? He starts with the Gentiles in chapter one. Wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness because you suppress the truth in your sin. Chapter two, hey Jew, you think you're better off than the Gentiles? You're not. You do the same things. Sinners too, right? Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we come to chapter three, verse nine. And what Paul is gonna do in these next verses through 18, he's gonna lay out a case, a summary, a comprehensive summary of what he's already said in the first two chapters. He is going to show us an example of what a fallen man looks like. Starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, okay, all in the New Testament doesn't always mean all. Here all means all. Just so we're clear. Okay. Here it does. Bless you, bless you. Have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay? Paul's not just saying only Jews and only Greeks are under sin. He's painting these two people as polar opposites in the culture, and he's saying this side and this side and everybody who's in between are under sin. Okay? He's not just using those two groups and saying, well, these two groups are sinners and then everybody else is good. No, he's, saying, he's using them as bookends. They're sinners and so is everybody else. Okay, We're going to read verses 10 through 18 without stopping. Let's, let's get her done. Verse 10, as it is written, every single line in your Bible, verses 10 through 18, is a quotation either from a psalm or a prophet. 
every single line is he's quoting the Old Testament. He's building a case for the total I'm going to give one of my points away here. I didn't mean to, but I went there. He's giving away the total depravity of man in these verses from the Old Testament. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. This is a picture of fallen humanity. This is a picture of you and me before God intervened in our lives. This, is, this was us. Let it, let's not miss that, okay? We're not talking about people out there, although we are. We're talking about us. This was us. There are two theological concepts that I wanna take from the verses we just read, okay? First one, I already gave it to you. I already slipped, slipped up. Number one, the total depravity of humanity. Let's define what that means. The total depravity of, huma of humanity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. That's utter depravity. None of us are as bad as we could be, okay, because of God's restraining grace, okay? But what it does mean is every single corner, every single aspect of our human being has Every one of them has been touched and impacted by the fall. Every one of them, every corner of our being has been touched by sin. We are totally depraved. And we know this. We know this because of Jesus. Jesus came. Did Jesus come as a chicken? No. Jesus, Jesus did not come as a chicken. He didn't come to save chickens. Jesus came as a human. Why? To save humans. My mind is impacted by the fall. That's why Jesus had a human mind. My mind needs redeeming. Jesus came with human emotions. Why? Because my human emotions are fallen. I need my emotions redeemed. Jesus came and had a full human nature. Why? Because I have a full human nature and it's sinful and it needs to be redeemed. That's, Jesus is the greatest example of why total depravity exists. Why is that, why does it exist? Jesus came just like one of us because every part of us needed redemption. Not just our souls, not just our minds. All of us needed redemption. Look at verses 10 and 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 12. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Why? Why can not, not, not one person that's ever been born was righteous, except for Jesus? Not one person. Not one person was ever born in their fallen state and able to do good. Not one. 
He says it right there, not one. Those are all quotations from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, by the way. So why? Why are they not, why can't, why do they not do any good? Why do they, why are none righteous? It's because of what we just talked about. We are totally depraved. Every part of us has been impacted by the fall. We're, right, we're gonna walk through this whole text, starting in verse 13, okay? I want us to see the comprehensiveness of this fallenness of humanity, okay? It is comprehensive. Look at verse 13, starting very beginning of the verse. Their throat is an open grave. Let me ask you what, let me ask you a question. What's in graves? Dead things, <laughs> dead things are in graves. Living things don't go to graves. It's dead things. This, this fallen man, his throat is, is allowing dead things to come out. Well, why? Where, where, does, where do these things that come out of our mouth, where do they come from? Jesus said from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This man, he's, his throat's an open grave, why? Because his heart is dead. This is a dead man. All he can do, all his throat can open up to do is dead things, death. Look at the second part of verse 13. They use their tongues to deceive. You know what James said about the tongue? Unbridled, it's set on fire by hell itself. That's what James said about the tongue. This man, he can't speak truth. All he can do is lie. Why? Because his tongue is controlled by the father of lies. All he can do is deceive. Why? Because his tongue is controlled by the great deceiver. Verse 13, end of the verse. The venom of asps is on their, under their lips. What does venom do? What does poison do? It kills. It kills. Are we seeing the pattern that Paul is laying out here? This man's dead. His heart is dead. His throat is letting dead things come out. He's deceiving. He's lying. He's killing with the, his lips. This is a comprehensive depravity. This is a totally dead man. Look at verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Underline that word, full. It's used in the Greek for a ship that's packed as packed as it can get. Can't fit anything else on the ship. What is it saying about this man? There's not, nothing else can fit. There's not one good thing that can fit anywhere in this man. All he can do is curse people. All that there can do is be cursing and wickedness and bitterness. There's nothing else can fit because he's full. He's full to the brim of just wickedness and deadness. This is a, this is a comprehensive picture of total depravity. This is not, I mean, this is full, full total depravity. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This doesn't necessarily mean that this man's just murdering people. But Jesus said what? He said, if you hate your neighbor, you've already committed murder in your heart. So what happens, what happens when, when this man who's dead and he's doing dead things and he's living his life, what happens when somebody comes and gets in his way? What does he do? He hates them. 
He wants to murder them. His feet are swift to shed the blood of others. He's harming other people to fulfill his desires. Look at verse 16. In their paths are ruin and misery. You can look behind this man and you can see the carnage that he has left in his wake. Speaking lies, deceiving, killing. Dead. He's he's dead and he leaves dead in his wake. I want to give you an illustration here. I thought it was kind of funny. It's a myth. Let me just say that out front, but I think, I think it's good here, okay? So, there's an animal called a lemming, okay? It's a little bitty rodent-looking thing, okay? And they are very uh, adept at procreating. Let's just say that, okay? So, they, they make lots of them really fast, okay? So, once a year... What happens in order, to, in order to get some of the, rid of some of the population of the lemmings because there are too many in one spot, what they do is, is like half of them will just run and they will just jump off a cliff to their own destruction. No, seriously, like millions of them will just run and just jump off a cliff to their own destruction, okay? Now, that's the myth part, Okay. They, they can actually swim, so they're not actually killing themselves. It's not like a mass suicide. But you get the picture, right? They're, they literally don't care what's going on around them. They're just going to run and jump off the cliff and die. That's what you and I were doing, just so we're clear. That's the illustration. You and I were running as fast as we could. When we were dead in our sins, we were running as fast as we possibly could to our own destruction. We were just going to run right off the cliff. We had no, we, there was nothing in us that was going to stop us from doing it. Nothing. We were just going to run. We, when you were dead in your sin, you didn't even know you were sinning. We were just sinning it up, right? Just loving sin and sin and sin. We didn't even know we were sinning. Like these lemmings, they just, millions of them running off a cliff. That was us. Verse 17. The way of peace they have not known. What's the opposite of peace? Strife, hatred, enmity. With who? With God. We're, we're, at, we're enemies of God. We were enemies of God in our fallen state. And because we're shedding blood, right? We, our, our fellow brother were enemies too. So he was our enemy. Everybody else was our enemy. All we had was enemies. Why? Verse 18. Look at verse 18. Because there was no fear of God in their eyes. Why was there no fear of God? Because there was no room for God. We just said that they were full of wickedness and bitterness and cursing. There's no room. There's no room for God in a place that's only death and full of wickedness. There's no room. So of course there's no fear of God in their eyes. There's no room for him. This is what we all look like. This is what a fallen man looks like. He's dead. He's, right? Who's seen the princess bride? Right? Remember when he goes to the little witch doctor? You guys remember that scene? He's like, the witch doctor's like, 
he's not all the way dead, <laughs> which means he's partly alive. That's not us. We were dead, dead. D-E-D. Dead. <laughs> Ephesians 2, chapter 1. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. We were dead. Not, sorry, not able. Dead people don't grab life preservers. Dead people don't open doorknobs. I've never seen a dead person open a doorknob, not one time. Paul has laid out the, the comprehensive nature of our fallenness in that text. That's what total depravity looks like. There's not one part of that person that is not impacted by sin. That's, it, it's meant to paint a picture of just a comprehensive fallenness. I gotta go. <clears throat> okay. He's just, so let me ask the question at the beginning again that we asked at the beginning. How can that person be found righteous before a holy God that they have offended. We've just laid out what this person's like. How can they be made righteous before a holy God? They can't. That's the answer. They can't. That leads us to our second doctrine that we want to talk about from this, these verses. It's the, so we have total depravity, now we have man's total inability. Total inability. Okay? Now, I'm just going to lay out the cases here. This is, where, this is where the Reformed idea, the Reformed doctrine of soteriology, salvation, this is where it splits with an Arminian view. Okay? They go divergent ways right here. Okay? Because the Arminian would say that even in a fallen state, even in a fallen state of sin, that a human has the ability to choose to follow Christ. Okay? The reform view is we have a dead person and dead people don't make choices. Okay? They, don't, they have no ability to come to Christ. We... Dead people don't come to Christ unless, we'll get there. I want to leave that hanging for a minute. Okay? Here's what I want to say. Let's talk a minute about this idea that we can choose in our fallen state to, fo to follow Jesus. Okay? It's either called, most people call it free will. Okay? Free will, I, I'm just going to say it. I lo love you. If you believe in free will, we can have a conversation, okay? It's a myth, okay? Dead people can only do dead things. Dead people can only do dead things. Dead people don't have wills to choose to follow Jesus, okay? Martin Luther wrote a great book called The Bondage of the Will. Every one of you should read it. It's incredible, he lays out his case that our will is not free to follow or choose to follow Christ. Let me give you, let me give you Martin Luther's quote on free will. This false idea of free will is a real threat to salvation and a delusion fraught with the most perilous 
consequences. I'm going to read that again. The false idea of free will is a real threat to salvation and a delusion fraught with the most perilous consequences. If you don't take my word for man's inability, and if you don't take Martin Luther's word for man's inability, let's see if you will take John and Jesus and Paul's word for man's inability. Will you please put 1 Corinthians chapter 2 up there, 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, here it is. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able, able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Able. He's not able. The natural man is not able to understand the things of God because they're spiritual and dead men are not spiritual. John 6, 44, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can. No one can. That's an ability word. That means there's a complete and utter inability to come to Christ unless God brings you. That's the only way. Why? Because we're we're lemmings. We're running the other direction to go jump off a cliff to our own destruction. Lazarus. Why did Lazarus come out of the womb? Is it because he heard Jesus talk? No, dead people don't hear anything. (laughs) Dead people don't hear. He was dead for four days. Why did he come out? Because Jesus spoke. He spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He created the heavens and the earth. Lazarus came out of that tomb because Jesus gave him life when he was dead. That's why he came out of the tomb. There was nothing that Lazarus did. He's dead. He came out of the tomb because Jesus called him out to life. So it is with you and I. We only came to Jesus because he called us to himself. He he spoke life and drew us to himself. Fifteen minutes. We might make it. Maybe. So then I ask the question again. I know we haven't answered the question yet. I know you guys are getting irritated with me here, okay? We're going to answer the question now, okay? How is a dead sinner who offended a holy and righteous God, how can that person be found justified in front of a holy God? And the answer is by grace. By grace. Not anything that we did. I I got a Spurgeon quote I want to read to you. You insult God by bringing your counterfeit coin to pay for his treasures. 
Oh, what poor ideas men have of the value of Christ's gospel if they think they can buy it. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. We have nothing to offer God, not one single thing. I ask you this morning, what counterfeit coin do you continue to bring before God as if you can justify yourself? Is it because you come to church every Sunday? That won't save you. Is it because you treat your neighbor well? That's really good. That, won't, that, that will not justify you before a holy God. All of our works are filthy rags. They offend God. They are offensive to him. They smell filthy to him. Put away our counterfeit coins and come to Christ in faith. Have six aspects of grace. We're going to get there. Have six aspects of grace that I want to examine as we answer the question, how are you and I justified before a holy God? Six aspects of his grace. I put these in order. If anybody knows what the order of salvation is or the ordo salutis, I have put these in logical order of the ordo salutis. If you want to know what the order of salutis is, come talk to me afterward. It's logical order of how these things took place, some in time and some, as we'll see, before time. Number one, aspect of God's grace, his electing, predestinating grace. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through five. Will you put that up there for me, please? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, the Father, chose us in Christ, in him, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. How incredible is that? That the grace of God began in your life if you are a believer before the world ever began. Second Timothy chapter one, please. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's grace in the life of a believer is an eternal grace. It is a grace that was lavished upon us in eternity past. Electing grace. Number two, regenerating grace. Regenerating grace. 
Put Ephesians chapter two, verses four and five up there, please. But God, okay, but. Everybody loves a good Bible but, right? Yes, sir. This is, this is a great one. This is a great one because Paul has just spent the first verse, three verses of chapter two telling us how we were dead in our sins, following Satan, doing our own thing, like the lemmings, okay? We were lemmings. Lemmings following Satan over the cliff, okay? But God. But you? No. But me? We? No. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You were dead. I was dead. Who made you alive? God made you alive. You didn't, you didn't make your, you can know, you and I can no more cause ourselves to be born again than we caused ourselves to be born the first time. First Peter, please, chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, you, your, your, our choices, our choose, choice to follow Jesus caused us to be born again? No, no, no. His great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He caused us to be born again. He did that. You did, it wasn't your faith. It wasn't my faith. I didn't, I didn't have faith and then I'm born again. No, I was, we were running toward destruction. Paul, Paul was on his way to go murder Christians. He wasn't looking for God. God came in and said, nope. He caused Paul to be born again. Electing grace, regenerating grace, believing grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, please. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? All of it's a gift of God. The whole thing. From start to finish, it's a gift of God, including your faith. You didn't just muster up your own faith to believe because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what 1 Corinthians says. The, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Therefore, if you're perishing, you're not like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. No, that's not what happened. If you have faith, it's because God gave you faith. It's a gift It's incredible. That's why, the, that's why the pea and tulip is a real thing, the perseverance of the saints. It's, not, it's because you're not just hanging on for dear life. No, that's not right. God's got you in his hand. He's never letting you go. Why? Because he put you in his hand. Bless you. Look at, Acts, look at Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 47. For, the, for so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now hear this, get this, verse 48. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. Why did they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life. They didn't just muster up some faith and believe. No, they believed because they were appointed. Which, which takes us back. Hear me. It takes us back to the, to the picture of turning the doorknob and the lifesaver. Listen. Those are imperfect presentations of the gospel. That's true. But what's the beauty, what's the beauty here? The beauty is we're... We're called to take the evangelize the nations. We're called to go and make disciples, right? There are people in every single city in this world that God has appointed to believe in Jesus and be saved. Therefore, we are to go. This is this, this doctrine of election, this doctrine of being, it should not hinder us from going, it should motivate us to go. Electing grace, regenerating grace, believing grace. Number four, sin removing, wrath satisfying grace. Look at, look at Romans chapter three, starting at the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Underline that word, propitiation. By his blood. You know what that word propitiation means? It means to satisfy the wrath of an angry party. Your sin and my sin angers God. It angered him. The sins of unrepentant people in the world, it angers him. They're under his wrath. We, 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 soften, we soften this doctrine up so much in our snowflake culture, don't we? We just soften it up. Like, oh, you just, what is salvation? It's you being saved from yourself. Phooey! That's phooey. If you're not, if you are not saved in here this morning, you are under God's wrath. And you need to know that. And it's not loving if we don't tell you that. You are under the condemnation of a holy God. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. This morning. Don't delay. This word propitiation assumes, it presupposes a wrath that the unbeliever is under. Go to Ephesians 2. I don't have it up there. We don't have to go there, but I'm just, Ephesians 2. We were under the, under the wrath of God like all of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, chapter 3. We cannot soften the bad news because what we do when we preach the bad news, it elevates God's grace and his goodness toward us. 
When we, when we don't preach the bad news, we rob people of grace. Justified. It means being found righteous. Not only not guilty. Not guilty is not good enough for us. So yes, Jesus took our sins. That's a true statement. And we needed that. That's a true statement. But all that does is declare us not guilty. We actually need to be found righteous before a holy God. So we, need a, we know that none of us are righteous. No, not one. So where do we get this righteousness? Where do we get a foreign righteousness? Leads us to number five. Imputing grace. Our for, the foreign righteousness comes when we trust in Jesus. God grants us Jesus' righteousness. Why do you think we preach every single week here? Not just that Jesus died for your sins, but he lived a perfect life that you could never live. Well, he lived a perfect life you could never live because you ain't righteous. And I'm not righteous. We needed somebody else to be righteous for us. And it's, Jesus is the only one. We need righteousness and we need the removal of sin. We need both. That's the great exchange, right? That's double image. The great exchange. God put our sin on Jesus and God gave us his righteousness in return. That's how we're saved. That's how we can be found justified. Philippians chapter three, verses eight, uh, verses eight and nine, please. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, it, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as scubalon in order that I might gain Christ. Look at verse 9. This is incredible. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God, from God, from God, that depends on faith. We needed a, we need a foreign righteousness credited to us because we are not righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Electing grace, regenerating grace, believing grace, wrath-satisfying grace, imputing grace. Finally, justifying grace. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29. We'll read through verse 33. For those whom he foreknew, that means to know intimately, that word foreknow, Brent broke it down when we went through Romans. It's, it's the same word as Adam knew Eve, okay? It's an intimate knowledge. It's a loving knowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he also justified, he also glorified. He, 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 
Not you, 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 you. Or me, 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 me. Nope. God did it all from start to finish. Every bit of it. Every step along the way. Verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Praise God. If it, if it were relying upon us to justify ourselves, you know how many of us would be saved? That means zero, by the way. <laughs> we have nothing to bring before God. Not one work. Not even the faith that we have to believe the gospel. That's a work. If it's something that we muster up on our own, that's a work. That's a filthy rag. If you, go to, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, it says, so that no man may boast. If I just mustered up the faith on my own, guess what? I've got a reason to boast. But because God did it from the beginning to the end, every step along the way, none of us can boast. It is God who alone who receives all of the glory. We deserve none of his glory that is, is rightly his. I want to end with Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. This is a beautiful, beautiful place to end today. Starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Drop the mic on that one right there. Let's pray. God, I... I pray this morning that your mighty name has been lifted high, that you have been magnified, that Jesus has been magnified, that we would see that we had no righteousness of our own. We only, came, by faith, we trust in Jesus and his righteousness is credited to us. And, and also that our sin was placed upon him on the cross, removing our sin, declaring us not guilty. God, rising from the dead to the hope of eternal life. 
God, would your grace be amplified in our lives this day and moving forward each day. It is in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen.